Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. Kopi Dulu means coffee first in Indonesian, a common phrase from those who are happy to have coffee anywhere, anytime, and with anyone. At least, that was Mark Evely's experience as a travel writer and reporter traveling across the country's many islands. That phrase gives the title of his latest book, Kopi Dulu, Caffeine-Fueled Travels Through Indonesia, published by Penguin Southeast Asia. Mark travels through Indonesia's cities and villages, jungles and seas, sharing his experience with the country's nature, history, and possibility for adventure. Mark is a travel writer and photographer whose work has, over 25 years, graced the pages of some of the world's most prestigious travel titles. The British-born writer, who lived most of his first decade in West Africa, has traveled widely in Africa, Latin America, and Asia, working for some of the world's most prestigious publications, including the BBC, The Telegraph, The Guardian, The Independent, National Geographic Traveler, Condé Nast Traveler, and CNN. Today, Mark joins the show to share his stories on islands like Java, Sumatra, and Borneo, and why it's important to pay attention to this large Southeast Asian country. So, Mark, thanks for thanks for coming on the show today. You know, I, I want to start by asking about the title of your book, um, which uses the phrase uh, Dulu. Um, You know, what exactly does that phrase mean, and why do you want to give your book that title? Well, copy dulu basically means um, copy first, in, coffee first in Indonesian. And from the, the very earliest days when I started traveling in Indonesia, in Indonesia about uh, 25, 26 years ago, um, copy dulu started to feel to me, um, it had an essence of Indonesia's um, hospitality, code of hospitality here. No matter where I landed in a, a city or a town or even a, a little jungle camp, people would often, you know, before you almost after you've introduced yourself, ah, sit down, let's have a copy, copy Dulu, we'll have a chat and settle in. And it's, um, as I traveled more and more around Indonesia, it became kind of a Indonesian catchphrase for hospitality here. Um, it's people, some people have jumped to the conclusion it's actually a book about coffee, but it's, uh, I guess it's a book, it's a travel book from Indonesia. And I guess it's really a book about hospitality and the local cultures here and meeting local people. So I mean, let's let's talk about um, kind of meeting local people. You know, how much of Indonesia and how many of these communities did you get to see during your travels there? Um, and that kind of leads to my other question, which is, and what was it about those experiences that drove you to write this book in the first place? Well, um, you know, the scale of Indonesia, even after. I've done quite a lot of traveling around the country. Even after all of that, the scale of Indonesia just really blows my mind. You know, it's um, if you traveled from, let's say, from Aceh in the the far west to Papua in the far east, it would be like doing a road trip from London to Khartoum, Sudan, and um, probably culturally, the differences across those areas is is comparable with that as well. Um, the I couldn't write about everywhere I've been in Indonesia in this book, and I narrowed it down. All the same, um, this trip follows a route of about, give or take, 15,000 kilometers around Indonesia and takes in the 50, more or less 50 of the most exciting islands and the most unique cultures that I've come across. 
Um, and I wanted to write the book because I really, uh, I said, I kind of started in the introduction to the book, you know, that Indonesia is sometimes described as the world's most invisible country. And that's not meant to sound insulting. And for anybody in Southeast Asia, it's, um, it's extremely well known. But it's incredible that the, the world's fourth most populous country um, you know, many most people in the West wouldn't have the slightest idea how to find Indonesia on a map. And um, apart from Bali, you know, people sometimes, um, you know, people in the West consider that Bali is Indonesia. They they really overlook the fact that there's so much incredible diversity on a on a nature front, on a cultural front, landscapes, even you know, fascinating cities. It's so diverse here, and I really, you know, I'd been surprised that there really isn't a book that I have thought that really does justice to um, to that incredible diversity. And that was really why I why I wanted to get Copy Doodle written, Why right? It's a book that's been in my mind to write for 15 years, probably. So let's let's talk about that diversity a bit. I mean, as you said, like everyone knows Bali. Bali is kind of the the as the as the tourist hotspot. Everyone knows about that island. Um, people probably know about Java, given it's where all the some like major cities like Jakarta are. Um, but there are, of course, all these other islands in in the country. Um, even even pretty big, prominent ones like like Sulawesi still don't get a lot of attention. What do we miss by by ignoring these islands that aren't Bali, that aren't Java? Yeah, um, as I've traveled around, I got um, you know come to. It's difficult to pigeonhole these islands because they, they're so different, so unique. Even neighboring islands can be wildly different. Um, but it's it seems to me, I've started to think that, that you have the Western islands, you know, you have the big Western islands that tend to be better, well known, uh, more well-known. There's Bali, which is obviously tiny, but um, then you have Java, you have Sumatra. They, they both get a fair amount of tourism. And then as you come across towards, the, let's say, the middle of Indonesia, you start to get Flores and Sumba. Um, then you get Kalimantan. You get Flores, Sumba, Sulawesi. Kalimantan, I mean, Kalimantan is two-thirds of the of the world's third biggest island, of uh, two-thirds of the island of uh, Borneo. And that's so such incredible um, potential for, cult, for um, adventure there. I've just spent the last six weeks traveling around it, actually. Um, I've traveled about 5,000 kilometers around Kalimantan in the last six weeks, researching for another book. And, um, you know, I met, I, I actually bumped into 10, 10 travelers here. It's amazing how few people get to these incredible areas. And then as you go even further east, you have um, the Malukus, the, the little Maluku Islands. Well, I say little, I mean, Halmahera Island there is, um, w- the name would probably not even be familiar to a lot of Indonesians. And yet, that's uh, an incredible island that has three—that's three times the size of Bali. Um, still, pretty much covered in in jungle, incredible cultures, um, high, um, spectacular volcanic landscapes. You know, three times the size of Bali, and most people would have wouldn't have the slightest idea where it is. Um, I love those, those islands over there, but as you get over that side, it becomes more inaccessible. It's it's actually it's a lot harder to get to. It, especially for anybody who doesn't speak Indonesian. I mean, I can scrabble by an Indonesian after the traveling I've done here. And um, those little islands, they, you know, it's just a whole world waiting to be explored. People say the accepted statistics, although nobody really knows how many islands there are in Indonesia, 
the accepted statistic is somewhere between, the estimate is somewhere between 13,500 and 17,500. And most estimates agree that there are probably 12,000 uninhabited islands. I mean, there's not another country in the world that has that kind of um, potential for adventure. So you mentioned in one of your answers earlier that, you know, that that you want to write about the hospitality um, that you kind of came across uh, from ordinary Indonesians as you were traveling around, um, traveling around all these different islands. Um, and I expect for many of these communities, you might have been the uh, only foreigner they they might have ever met or the first foreigner to have been there in a very, very, very long time. Um, you know, I wonder if you might kind of talk about what it was like to kind of meet to meet these people, to meet these these households, these store owners, um, these guides, um, and I guess about the hospitality they showed you as someone who was visiting. Mm. Um, you know what? One of the highlights, really, of of the trips has you know has been in cases where I've been able to go back to places sometimes sometimes mm. several years after I first visited them. And to meet people, you know, I, I, there have been villages where I, I've been the first Westerner who's been there um, in central, in West Kalimantan, for example. And recently I've just been back to visit them for the fourth time. And it's so nice to go back to those villages. But um, your question brings brings to mind something that I've been noticing lately and it's a strange um, kind of post-pandemic um change in in the cultures in that a lot of those places in the last few years last couple of years have now received tv they have phone signals they have youtube and so it's so strange that even within the last couple of weeks i've met little kids maybe you know three four years old who will certainly never have seen an outsider before never have seen a, a westerner and probably not a tourist even from the region um and yet suddenly far different from how it was 20 years ago when I traveled here. You know, we're familiar from TV, from YouTube. And um, there was even a little girl I met the other day who's like four years old in a village way up the Mahakam River. And she has an amazing command of English. Okay, only a four-year-old command of English, but it's quite incredible that she was reeling off all these names of animals and colors and things. And she gets it purely from YouTube, you know, so that the world is kind of changing in that way. You know, one of the one of the kind of stories that most jumped out to me, kind of in in reading your book, was your time spent on the and I'm going to probably pronounce this this word incorrectly, on the on the Finnessy, which are these um, which are these boats. Um, sounds like a very fancy boat, um, but you know, made made entirely from from wood, I believe, and made using traditional techniques. Um, I wonder if you might talk a bit more. About I guess about these shipbuilders and about this um, traditional art of of building these of, of of building these vessels. Yeah, sure. Um, when I mentioned earlier about the Malukus and all of that that little tangle of island, well, huge tangle of island actually, but um, you know, so remote and uh, fairly inaccessible. They're really inaccessible almost in any other way. You could get there on little fishing boats if you had a command of, of the language. But basically, Panisis are are an amazing way for exploring even the, the remotest islands in eastern eastern Indonesia. Um, and they, they're able to do it in a level of, of very high luxury, actually. 
as you pointed out, you know, some of these boats are extremely luxurious, but um, not all Panisis are like that. And many of them are still working boats. Although these days, Panisis going under sail is very, very, very unusual, except in the tourism market where they're still built along kind of traditional lines, but with engines. And um, But one of the really amazing things about them, um, the cultural side of everything, they're built uh, by the Bugis people. And now the Bugis are... Um, the people they used to be pirates who traded, who sailed, pl- plundered across, um, chasing the monsoon winds. Traders, some might say. In a lot of cases, they were definitely pirates. And um, the word boogeyman came to you know a million childhood nightmares from the Bugis people, and they their communities are on the southern side of um, Sulawesi, and they they still continue to build these these boats to to ancient traditions as um they don't need um you know blueprints and, and drawings basically a boat etched out on the sand and they can build a 50 60 meter pinisi but traditionally these days they, they're building a lot more for the for the tourism market and now thankfully let's say um indonesia has um stopped a lot of the of the logging so the hard, hardwoods that they used to get are now much shorter supply so it's difficult for them for that reason but um that you know in the long run that's a good thing but the traditions are, are they're still built along the same traditional lines and involving a lot of ceremonies one of the, the things that sticks in my mind for example is that in the old days they used to say that a boat had to take nine months for it to be built and this is what I this is what I was told when I was there, um, and that's because a boat has to come alive. It's just like a person. It's a it's a living thing. And at the beginning, when they lay the keel, for example, they chop the end of the keel off and throw it into the water. It's almost the first thing they do. So now that the ocean has nine months to get used to the boat before it's launched, um, obviously there there are a lot of sacrifices and things involved all the way along the process. It's um it's an amazing amazing tradition. And these, you know, Western marine architects who have been there to work with the Bugis people have usually come away learning way more from the Bugis than the Bugis learned from the from the Westerners. I don't think anybody knows how old the tradition is. It's probably one of those seafaring traditions that's evolved over centuries, you know, if not millennia, a thousand years, maybe. Um, and it's it's evolved. So, you know, th- there's no point where you say this is when they started building Panisis. But it's recently been um, recognized as a UNESCO part of uh, the intangible heritage. So uh, a little bit more notice is going that way. But I was very privileged to go and spend time with in those communities, learning a little bit how the, the boats have actually built and then sailed. I remember reading the the bit about the how how a boat takes um, nine months to build, uh, regardless of how big it is. Um, so it's not like it's not like when when they're building a smaller boat, they build it in less time. It's like no, it takes nine months, and that's how long it takes. Exactly. It's um, they would you know a small boat. The the way they explained it to me, a small boat, you you maybe will build it with just five people, and it will take you nine months. A big boat is going to take. Um, you know, 100 people to build it, and it'll still take nine months. This is the tradition. But these days, I mean, a boat that I was sailing on, uh, you know, is a multi-million dollar, has been tuned basically to a, to a super yacht, and that took seven years. So it's not a tradition that's um, that's cast in iron these days. Eh? Um, and I, I, I want to shift topics now. You know, the name, the name Wallace pops up a lot. Um, 
in your book, and that's referring to the to the famous um, the famous biologist. Uh, but I guess you know who I, I guess who was he, and what makes him so important when it comes to uh, talking about Indonesia. Yeah, um, yeah, Alfred Russell Wallace. Well, he was an, he was a Welsh uh, naturalist. Firstly, he's um, you know since I started reading about Indonesia, he's pretty much my hero. Actually, he's um, an amazing character. He's uh, the the poor guy. Basically, has gone down in history as the man who wasn't Darwin. He came up with the theory of evolution on the island of Ternate in the Maluku's, um, and wrote a letter to Darwin while he was while. He himself, Wallace, was still there collecting species. He, he was a naturalist who collected species for sales. Um, and Darwin was inspired or, let's say, provoked by that idea to release his own theory of evolution. And some historians historians have built up, you know, the, that, they, that there was a, a kind of a rift in, um, uh, you know, a arguments between them, but I don't think so. I think it seems like they were mutually very respectful and it's just strange that they came up with the same theory at basically the same time. But what inspires me about uh, Darwin, about Wallace, is his book. He wrote um, the the Malay Archipelago about his six years of travels around those islands. And I still think it's the most exciting book um, by any Westerner on Indonesia, it's such an exciting book to read. People sometimes say, uh, you know, they couldn't get through it; it was it was boring. But I usually think that if they say that, they probably didn't actually try to read it because it's it's a great book. And um, apart from the the natural, the the his great descriptions of the natural world and everything, he was just such an adventurer and really a hero. And he traveled. He, you know, Darwin was quite a, a gentleman with his with his place on the on the Beagle. Wallace travelled in very much grassroots um, conditions. He really roughed it. He didn't mind sleeping in jungle huts. I think he was six foot six or something, and he used to sleep in jungle jungle huts with his boots sticking out of the doors. Um, and he travelled always with uh, with local people. This was pre-Indonesian, obviously, um, but he obviously they were they were friends. He had a great re- relationship with those people. It was very it was really not like the typical explorer of his era. Um, and then the the findings, you know, the stuff that he discovered. Off the top of my head, I think it's one hundred and twenty five thousand species he did he brought back, and I think three thousand or five thousand were new to science. So it was amazing what he what he managed to achieve in those travels. And he, and he comes up with something called the Wallace Line, um, which again kind of kind of gets a few references in in your book. Um, what exactly is this line? Yeah, the Wallace Line is a division that cuts down through Indonesia between Borneo and Sulawesi, and between Lombok and and Bali. I mean, you can you can basically see the currents. It's, a, it's not a, a visible line, but if you look across the sea from Bali towards Lombok, there's almost a rift where the currents actually shoot through, and they're so vicious that they have basically stopped a lot of species from crossing between east and west. So either what it basically means is either side of the Wallace line, and Wallace was the first person to realize that, you have a different set of species. You have um, marsupials on one side, monkeys on the other side, um, that kind of thing. He he found the island where he realized must be the last, the most easterly spot where monkeys had ever been. And what's more, he realized that it was probably Bugis sailors who had released pets there that brought that population there because 
he was well aware that they were on an island where they shouldn't have been. The, I think the line was um, named the Wallace line. As far as I know, it was named well after his death. I, he was probably not even aware he got attributed it as that. No, I guess, I guess one more one more question on Wallace. I'm just remembering, um, and, and, and I forget exactly what, what Indonesian city you were in, but you spent time trying to find... Um, find his house um and you actually find a find it find a building that's probably uh where wallace may have stayed yeah um that was in tanate so where he wrote the letter to darwin and he spent several months in tanate who he used it as a base anyway and would go in and out from there um actually down to a little island called Bachan, which I really want to get back to and explore. We I stopped in it researching for the book, but that's a, an amazing little area. And three it's about a third the size of Bali. Um and I don't think that any other Westerner had been in the villages that we landed in, in the north, perhaps even since since Wallace was there. I couldn't say for sure, but Nobody had ever any nobody there had ever seen a Western arrive, put it that way. Um and yeah, we went to look for his house in Tanate. Um people have tried to find it, but there were a few houses a couple of houses that had been listed, you know, and there's even a Wallace Avenue, a Wallace alleyway, which seemed like a great place to start. But the um the probable houses that we found were, were clearly not the right one. And it didn't take a ton of de- detective work, actually, because um, Alfred Russell Wallace was so so thorough in pretty much everything he did that he actually drew a floor plan of the house in in his book, in um, the Malay Archipelago. So it, we, I managed to figure out basically the, the size that Ternate might have been at that time and his descriptions of walking between the port and the little marketplace and the fact that there were no other Westerners living beyond because in those days that village would have been it was actually uh the dutch capital in those days so he would have um he would have known pretty much you know there will there will have been westerners living there um so we managed to track the house down and realized that there was really only one that could fit with the floor floor plan that he described and people as i said at the beginning of of our talk actually is so hospitable there was actually a kids party going on there and I can't imagine how in England you could basically wander as a complete stranger up to a kid's party, kid's birthday party, and be invited in. But that's what happens in Indonesia. And they invited us in, and we kind of shyly explained what we were what we were looking for. And they led us out the back of the house, and there was the well in exactly the position that uh, Wallace had described it. So I'm 99% sure that that was the house that we found. You know, I want to I want to stay on the topic of of nature and biodiversity and and you know, I I guess all of all of that biodiversity in Indonesia. But I, I guess returning to the present day and and your own travels about the country. I mean, you um you get to experience all this nature for yourself. I mean, you're you're um you're also roughing it uh in the jungle. Um, nature intrudes on your travels a lot. You go to the place, um, the island where where the Komodo dragons, um, are from. And I guess maybe just kind of to kind of cap off our conversation about your travel to the country, um, I just want to ask you about uh, your experiences with Indonesia's nature, with all of its animal and, and plant diversity. Yeah, um, you know, I don't want to harp on about statistics and things, but even on, on this basis, uh, it's the most second most diverse uh, country on the planet after after Brazil. 
Um, and there are almost as many man- mammal species in Indonesia as there are close to as many as there are in the whole of Africa. Um, and then you have here some really iconic local species like the Sumatran tigers, obviously orangutans on both Sumatra and, and Borneo. And then there's the Komodo dragon, which everybody knows about, which, um, you know, from tiny islands actually next to next to Flores. Um, I think a lot of people, the, the wildlife definitely draws a lot of people here. Um, people perhaps decide whether they're going on a cultural trip or a, or a wildlife trip. And I, as I've traveled around more, I've kind of come to the conclusion that it, it's a mistake to separate those two things because there are, once you get to wildlife areas and you spend time in local communities or even you, you, know, you go to another level with your guide and ask about the traditions and the beliefs and even the, the herbal medicine, the traditional medicines and things in the jungle, it's, um, you, you start to get such fascinating stories with them. Um, you know, the Komodo dragons, for example, and there, I don't know if, um, as far as I know, um, David Attenborough, when he went there, he didn't actually visit the villages, or at least he didn't feature the villages there, but they must have been there then. Um, and there are, are incredible villages in Komodo and Rinsha Island that very few tourists take time to visit, and yet they're actually besieged by by dragons, and they have all of these traditions and these beliefs, and a commonly held story is, for example, that they were rebels on the island of Sumbawa who were exiled onto Komodo and Rinchia by a sultan there who naturally assumed that they would just be eaten by the dragons. And yet they've survived there and they've they've made a home there, albeit um, a, a, a tentative and a fairly risky one. Um, you know, and there are so many of those traditions. And they, I've just been up in the Mahakam River where the, there are similar stories different but similar about the white Irrawaddy dolphins and you have the orangutans and their, their um, relationship with the Iban people. It's very interesting as you travel around and you ask, you find the Indonesian link, the Indonesian, the local communities link with their, their animals. At the same time, you know, deforestation and logging and mining are, um, are still problems and it's sometimes quite heartbreaking to travel to, to jungle areas and realize that you have to pass through vast expanses, entire hillsides of oil palms before you can actually get to them. Um, there's a lot of wilderness and a lot of wildlife still here. Um, but as rich as those statistics are, I think there there must be a lot of species that people aren't even aware of yet. Species are still, still being discovered here and presumably are disappearing at, at a rate that we'll never catch up with as well. You know, I, I, I want to ask maybe kind of one more question, um, and that's going to bring things, I, I guess, to the really, really present day. Um, I mean, obviously, with, with COVID, it's been hard to travel around. Um, it's been hard to uh, to experience some of these places. Um, I think, and, and, and as far as the travel around, I think even, even internally, even within countries as large as Indonesia, um, I guess, you know, what's been your experience um, with traveling in Indonesia during during COVID, and and now that things are reopening, what are you excited to get back to? Hmm, good question. Um, this is it's been a real privilege that um, since uh, actually I spent the first year of the of the pandemic lockdown in Bali, um, which was not so bad. I live uh, some of the time in West Bali with my wife there, um, and then the second part lockdown in South Africa 
just managing to arrive in South Africa with enough time to get hammered by the South African variant. So it was kind of a double heavy lockdown once we got there. But anyway, um, it's good to be back in Indonesia now. And I think I, I've been so inspired now to be able to travel around Kalimantan. Um, and I had previously traveled mostly in West Kalimantan, which I knew to be let's not let's not necessarily say unexplored area but it gets very few tourists um i knew i knew that it's kind of the least traveled part of kalimantan which is the indonesian side of borneo um and now i've traveled a lot around the country and i realize that it's you know i've actually seen 10 tourists in the last six weeks or 10 western tourists in the last six weeks of traveling there's there's so much to see here um, and that goes for for so many of um, of Indonesia's even the main islands. Never mind the little ones. Sulawesi is the same. Sulawesi has a draw card with the rich culture of the Toraja people, kind of in the middle there. But the island, if you take a road trip from one corner to the other, it's like seventeen hundred kilometers long. So there's so much to see here. I mean, I think I could travel in um, in Indonesia for another lifetime. And still not see everything. Probably the commonest question I get is, uh, as a travel writer, and I've been doing this job for more than 25 years now, people usually say, what's your favorite country? And um, I I can't, probably I don't have a huge concentration span, so I like to be able to switch around and get to Africa sometimes or whatever. But I usually cheat and just say, look, if I had to travel in one country for the rest of my life, I would probably pick Indonesia because I feel like I could travel here and, you know, never see the same place twice. And I could just, you could roam in Indonesia for several lifetimes and it would still be exciting and you'd still be coming across so many new places and wonderful people everywhere you go. uh, There's kind of, I don't feel like there's any question of a security problem here. There's a natural code of hospitality so that you genuinely feel welcome everywhere you go. So I think that's a great place to end our conversation with Mark Evely, author of Kopidulu, Caffeine-Fueled Travels Through Indonesia. Mark, I do actually have two final questions for you, which are, uh, where can people find your work? And what's next for you? What do you think the next project might be? Hmm. So um, the best place to, my, my books are all on um, Mark, www.markevely.com. Um, that's the best place to look, but they're also up on Amazon. Um, that's the best place for copy Dulu. Next thing on the headline for me is to finish off this Borneo book. And I'm, I also have a novel coming out in probably in February, a novel based in West Bali in the little village community that I live in, in West Bali. Um, so I guess I, I need to keep silent about that for the time being, but maybe we can have a chat about that next time. <laughs> yes. Yes. I look, I look forward to hearing more about about both those books um, closer to um, closer to to release. You can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find many more author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. This podcast is on all of your podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Stay tuned for more info who's coming up on the show. But before then, Mark, thank you so much for coming on the day and talking about Kopidulu. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's been um, great to have a chance to catch up and have a chat. Thank you. <laughs>